You're listening to the Redeeming History Podcast, Season 1, The End of the Age, brought to you by Rebel Alliance Media. So this episode is not what was promised at the end of the last one. This is a rabbit trail that turned into an entire episode. But before we get there, let's do a quick review of where we've been so far. In the first episode, we focused on two previous houses of God that had been torn down and destroyed. The tabernacle at Shiloh, destroyed by the Philistines, and the Solomonic temple, destroyed by the Babylonians. We saw that what Jesus was prophesying about the second temple, the temple of his day, was not without precedent. Consistent and persistent covenant breaking leads to God destroying his house of worship. In the second episode, we saw that even though those judgments took place, God always kept for himself a remnant and provided his people with a new temple both times. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD was going to be no different. Except the remnant will be made up of a new people, a people willing to give God the fruit of his vineyard, unlike the wicked tenants of apostate Israel. And the new temple would be one made not of physical stone, but of spiritual stones, the very people of God with Christ as its cornerstone. In the last episode, we zoomed in specifically at the character of Josephus. Since he is our best source for the events of the Jewish-Roman War and of the siege of Jerusalem, I wanted to examine the circumstances surrounding his life, character, uh, career, and particularly his defection from the Jewish army to the Roman side to get a bit of an understanding of who he was. The siege of Yodfat, which is where we spent most of our time, occurred during the first stages of the war, and the plan was to tell the rest of the story in the remaining episodes. Then this happened. So consider this a bonus episode. You're welcome. So before we come to the climactic end of Jerusalem and the temple, there were some very interesting, likely somewhat unknown to you, little bits of history around this period that I wanted to dive into, but wasn't sure if they would really fit in as part of our series or not. We've already talked about the tabernacle, the first temple of Solomon, and the second rebuilt temple, but my question was, were there any other places of worship amongst the Jewish people in and around this period of time? Surprisingly. To many, the answer is yes. And not just yes, but more than one. And actually, more than two. In fact, there were three other temples that existed in different places alongside and contemporary with the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem that we read about in Ezra and in Nehemiah. This is episode four of The End of the Age, Which Mountain?
In John chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples are traveling through Samaria when they have a now famous interaction with a woman at a well. Jesus asks the woman for a drink, and she responds by saying, quote, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds this little note in the text, quote, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This animosity is so severe that Josephus tells us that Samaritans often harassed Jews traveling through Samaria between Galilee and Judea, and that on one occasion a group of Samaritans scattered human bones in the sanctuary in Jerusalem, and in turn the Jews burned down a number of Samaritan villages. And this is just a selection of some of the events that Josephus records for us. And so an understanding of that level of hostility that existed really does color Jesus's later parable of the Good Samaritan. But what was the reason for this animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans in the first place? Or better yet, where did the Samaritans even come from? Most of us don't even bat an eye when we pop open the New Testament and all of a sudden there is an entirely new ethnic group living in the northern part of Israel that was basically non-existent when we finished reading the Old Testament. We kind of just take their presence for granted. Scripture gives us some detail as to the origin. 2 Kings 17 records the downfall of the northern kingdom of Israel at the hands of the Assyrians which occurred in 722 BC. 2 Kings 17.6 says, quote, In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Unquote. As you might expect, this downfall is the result of the sin and idolatry of the people, as we are told that they are serving the Baals and Asherah, worshiping idols, sacrificing their children as offerings to the false gods, and using all manner of divination and sorcery in their worship. And this is what the writer of 2 Kings says happens after Samaria was captured by the Assyrians. Quote, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. 
But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Banath, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibaz and Tartak. And the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sephirvaim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. 2 Kings 17, 21 now, the Samaritans that we meet in the New Testament, who have become a distinctly separate ethnic group from the rest of their Jewish brethren, may or may not be directly descended from any of these pagan squatters in Samaria. But at the very least, there's no question that the syncretistic religious beliefs brought to that area by them had some lasting effects. And so, since the development of the Sumerians as a people group was a long process as opposed to something which has a definable beginning or start date, all we can say is that at some point after the return of the Israelites from Babylonian exile back to the land, these divergences in belief and practice between the Samaritans and the Jews occurred. Foundationally, the Samaritans rejected all of the Jewish scriptures except for the Pentateuch. But even there, they created a uniquely Samaritan version of the Pentateuch, which reflected many of their commonly believed distinctives. The most important distinctive being that they hold that the original place of worship for the people of God was set up at Mount Gerizim, when Joshua conquered the land and they reject Jerusalem as the true temple site. Therefore, in their eyes, when the temple at Gerizim was built during the post-exile period, sometime in the 5th century BC, they viewed it as a rebuilding of the apparent original. The temple wouldn't last long, though. In the 2nd century BC, Either during the reign of the high priest John Hyrcanus or Simeon the Just, tensions between the Jews and Samaritans would result in the temple's destruction. And while the Samaritan community itself would continue to thrive for much longer, still a strong presence when Jesus meets the woman at the well in John chapter 4, by the time of the Middle Ages, the estimated population was less than 2,000. And as of the year 2017, it is estimated to be just a few hundred, though they are still worshiping at their holy site at Gerizim, even though there is no longer a temple there. So that's just one instance of Jews living outside of Jerusalem, having set up another place of worship and sacrifice, either alongside or, in this case, in competition with the true temple in Jerusalem. The other two, at least the other two that we know of, are not located anywhere in the biblical bounds of the land of Canaan. Rather, they are back down in Egypt. 
The first and older of the two is the Jewish temple at Elephantine. In the late 19th century, what is known as the Elephantine papyri were discovered, mostly by accident from local farmers digging around the area. The papyri consists of 175 individual documents that span a period of roughly 1,000 years. Many of the documents are mundane, consisting of anything from property transactions, wills, emancipation letters, even a brother scolding his sister for not asking about his health after he was bitten by a snake. But for us, the most interesting documents date to the 5th century BC and are letters to and from a Jewish community that formed in the area around that time. The exact origins and date of the Jewish community at Elephantine are uncertain, but most believe that it began as a military outpost that was established by King Manasseh of Judah to help assist the Egyptians, with whom he was allied, in their Nubian campaign, which is around 650 BC. Now, the documents from the Elephantine papyri that we have concerning the Jews there are dated a couple hundred years later during the time of Persia's rise to power. We know that a functioning temple was constructed there because included in the papyri are requests for it to be rebuilt after it had been torn down by some of its opponents. This is a letter from the chief priest Jedaniah petitioning the Persian governor of Judah, Bagaviah, for help. Quote, to our Lord Bagaviah, governor of Judah, your servant Jedaniah, the priest, and his colleagues, the priests who are in Elephantine, the fortress, and all of the Jews, fourfold salutation. The welfare of our Lord, may the God of heaven seek after thee abundantly at all times, and favor may he grant you before Darius the king and the princes more than now a thousand times, and long life may he give you, and happy and strong may you be at all times. Report now your servant Jedaniah and his colleagues, the priests and the Jews, thus say." Unquote. And it goes on like that. He's definitely not trying to butter them up at all, right? Now, I'll sum up the rest rather than quote from the document, um, because what we have is so fragmented and pieced together that it really doesn't make for pleasant reading, let alone pleasant listening. But basically, Jedaniah tells the story of how the temple was badly damaged, almost completely destroyed, really, by the chief priest of the temple of the Egyptian god, Kanum. But Jedaniah appeals to the antiquity of the Jewish temple there, stating that it was there when Pharaoh Cambyses came to Elephantine. And when he came, he actually destroyed the rival Egyptian temples and allowed the Jewish temple to remain. So Jedaniah pleads with the Persian governor to give them permission to rebuild the temple as Egypt is now under Persian influence and control. 
possibly influenced by the fact that Cyrus the Great, right, the Persian ruler uh, from the New Testament that we know of, has already done something similar in allowing the Jews to return and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem some decades earlier. The response from the Persian governor is favorable, and the appeal to precedent carried great weight. This is Bagavaya's decree. About the altar house of the God of heaven, which was built in Elephantine the fortress, which was formerly before Cambyses, and which Vidrenga, that wicked man, demolished in year 14 of Darius the king, decision to rebuild it on its site as it was formerly, and the meal offering and the incense they shall offer upon that altar just as formerly was done. Now, interestingly, in Jedaniah's request, he specifically requested that not just meal offerings and offerings of incense would resume, but burnt offerings as well. The fact that this is intentionally omitted in Bhagavaya's response leaves us wondering whether this was something that was not previously done, and now Jedaniah was hoping to have it added to the practices at the Elephantine Temple, or if they were practicing it before, but the Persians now wanted to limit the practice of burnt offerings to the temple in Jerusalem only. And quite possibly, this came as a request from the leaders in Jerusalem. And this is what many speculate. But unfortunately, like many things in history, that is all we have. Speculation. We are quite certain, based on some later documents in the papyri, that the temple was in fact rebuilt, but that it only lasted at most another century or so before it ceased operation and was either destroyed for good or possibly amalgamated into the temple of Kanum, which was significantly enlarged in the middle of the 4th century BC. So, in the first example, we had the temple at Gerizim, the Samaritan temple that was built as a rival, fully functioning temple after the return from exile and the rebuilding of the original temple in Jerusalem. With the Elephantine temple, Depending on how soon they built the temple after the community was established, it's possible that this temple was standing while the first temple was standing, and then through the period of the exile, and then also alongside the rebuilt temple for about another 150 years, which would have made it the only standing Jewish temple during the 70-year period of exile. Now, it's unclear whether the intention of this temple was to function as a replacement for the temple in Jerusalem, like the temple at Gerizim, or if it was simply as a supplement for the Jews living such a great distance from home. The fact that scripture does not mention it, let alone promote it, uh, is not a good indication in terms of its legitimacy. In fact, we have good reason to believe that while supposedly worshipping Yahweh, they were also worshipping some of the Egyptian deities as well as the Canaanite goddess Anath, which, based on what we've seen already, makes it no wonder that it was destroyed. And so this brings us to our third and final non-Jerusalem Jewish temple site, once again in Egypt. And that is the temple 
at Leontopolis. Now, this temple, like the Gerizim temple, was founded during the Second Temple period, or the period after the return uh, from exile, but it wasn't destroyed until 73 AD, making it the last standing Jewish center of worship and sacrifice in the world, outliving the Jerusalem temple by three years. Now, all three of these stories could and probably should take up an entire episode, if not an entire season. But like I said earlier, this is just a little taste so we don't get too far off on this side trail in terms of our main story, which is the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD. But to understand the story of Leontopolis, we need to go back quite a way. If you recall back in episode one, we saw the curse that was given to the house of Eli, the high priest, because of the sins of Hophni and Phinehas. That there would not be a male left in his household, and therefore the high priesthood would be stripped away and given to another. We find the fulfillment of this in 1 Kings chapter 2. During David's final days, one of his sons, Adonijah, makes a claim for the throne and he actually receives support from both Joab, the commander of the army, and from Abiathar, the high priest. When Solomon ascends to the throne, all three of these men are repaid for their treachery. Benaiah, one of David's mighty men, is sent to execute both Adonijah and Joab. But to Abiathar, Solomon says this. Quote, And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your state, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. 1 Kings 2, 26, 27. The one who replaces Eli's household in the position of high priest is Zadok. He is a priest who comes from a different Aaronic lineage than did Eli, and he was also an unflinching supporter of King David during the revolt of Absalom and also supported Solomon during the revolt of Adonijah that we had just mentioned earlier. So, for the rest of the Old Testament, the high priesthood is filled by a member of the house of Zadok. But during the intertestamental period, something very interesting happens. After the reign of Alexander the Great is dissolved and divided, the area of Judea falls under the control of the Seleucids, one of the ruling dynasties that inherited some of Alexander's kingdom. Due to the decades of Greek influence, the Jewish culture was becoming more and more Hellenized every day and this was very concerning to the high priests. They feared an eventual loss of a distinctly Jewish culture altogether. One particular high priest, Onias III, was very against this Hellenizing tendency. 
Up until this time, the Seleucids and the priesthood had an amenable relationship, and the temple enjoyed essentially tax-exempt status. Many of Onias's contemporaries, however, were trying to move in the direction of Hellenization. One official in the temple named Simon the Benjamite convinced Seleucus IV, the ruler of the empire at the time, to plunder the temple. The attempt was unsuccessful, but it was a sign of things to come. In 175 BC, when the infamous Antiochus IV, or uh, better known as Antiochus Epiphanes, came to power, Onias' own brother Jason, himself on the side of the Hellenizers, went and bribed Antiochus to give him the high priesthood. The book of 2 Maccabees says, quote, When Seleucus died and Antiochus, who was called Epiphanes, succeeded to the kingdom, Jason, the brother of Onias, obtained the high priesthood by corruption, promising the king at an interview 360 talents of silver, and from another source of revenue, 80 talents. In addition to this, he promised to pay 150 more if permission were given to establish by his authority a gymnasium and a body of youth for it, and to enroll the people of Jerusalem as citizens of Antioch. When the king assented and Jason came to office, he at once shifted his compatriots over to the Greek way of life. 2 Maccabees 4, 7-10 But it doesn't take long for Jason to receive his comeuppance. Here again from 2 Maccabees, quote, After a period of three years, Jason sent Menelaus, the brother of the previously mentioned Simon, to carry the money to the king and to complete the records of essential business. But he, when presented to the king, extolled him with an air of authority and secured the high priesthood for himself, outbidding Jason by 300 talents of silver. After receiving the king's orders, he returned, possessing no qualification for the high priesthood, but having the hot temper of a cruel tyrant and the rage of a savage wild beast. So Jason, who, after supplanting his own brother, was supplanted by another man, was driven as a fugitive into the land of Ammon. 2 Maccabees 4, 23, 26. Menelaus was a Benjamite. Not only was he not of the house of Zadok, or any other Aaronic house, he wasn't even a Levite. Never before had such a thing taken place in the entire history of Israel. Onias, who was now in exile, spoke out against this and other treacheries committed by Menelaus, and for his trouble, Menelaus had him assassinated. Onias had a son, Onias IV. He was only a child when his father was killed and therefore could not make a claim to the high priesthood, and so he was swept away to Egypt for safety. And it would be there, with the help of the Seleucids' biggest rival, the Ptolemies, that Onias IV would build and preside over a Jewish temple in the Egyptian city of Leontopolis. 
Ptolemy IV, and his sister wife, Cleopatra II, the great-great-great-great-grandmother of the famous Cleopatra, are happy to support Onias, hoping that it will undermine the Seleucid control of Judea, which the Ptolemies and the Seleucids were constantly fighting over. Never again would a legitimate Zedekite sit as high priest in Jerusalem. This is likely why, when we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus attending and participating in virtually every Jewish feast and celebration, even Hanukkah, but not the Day of Atonement, the one sacrifice that required the high priest to perform. For Onias, he hoped that his lineage would be enough to cause the people to flock to him and his temple. And although his temple did gain a certain amount of popularity, the area even becoming known as the Land of Onias, it never supplanted Jerusalem in importance. Not even close. And even those Jews who did offer sacrifices in Leontopolis, they would still travel to Jerusalem to fulfill their duties when necessary. After the Jewish temple in Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, Vespasian was concerned about a similar Jewish uprising based around Onias' temple in the now very heavily Jewish populated Egypt. So, in 73 AD, three years after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, it too, with a relatively lacking resistance, is torn down and never again has there been a Jewish center of sacrificial worship been built or used. Like I said at the top, this was really a sidetrack full of rabbit trails and doesn't really progress our main narrative, but it does shed a little bit of light on some of the things going on before, during, and after the events that we're focusing on. And if nothing else, it helps you see how messy and interrelated and interconnected history is, and part of the fun is attempting to sort all of it out. So next week, I promise, we'll be back on track looking at the people and events that caused the Jewish-Roman War to start in the first place. 